I would love to get your take on how things are down in Cornwall. It's obviously well, I think it's crazy because um because obviously I've got a very good like Cornwall take, but our London business has dramatically changed as well. So I think that's something that's really interesting. Um, so I mean, you I want to start the there then? Yeah, I mean, what I'd say is the first thing I'd say is um like this this time last year I hadn't fully moved to Cornwall. We only got our first lot of sheep at the end of May. So I was still living in a houseboat in London this time last year. And at the time, my butcher, well, Ian Warren, son of Philip Warren, you know, they really wanted me to stay in London, you know, but they knew I'd been up there 10 years, built a very strong business. Mm. And, it was, you know, and I had an opportunity to take over the family farm. So, you know, and that's what I always wanted to do. Um, but, you know, if I hadn't have done that, then I, you know, I would have been up there with everyone else on my, on my little houseboat. <laughs> um, and I think because I've, I've been out to London a lot, it's quite good for me because I sort of see, I see all the restaurants shut, which is horrible because it's all my mates' mm. restaurants. And, I, and you just know, you know, I have to say, I think Londoners have been incredible for social distancing. I've, been, I've driven around London twice a day for the last six weeks and I've seen very few people not social distancing. You know? So I've got nothing to compare it to, really. So I've only been doing it a year properly. Um, but yeah, for me, you know, I've got two separate small holdings. Um, I have to go and see them every day because we've got a few sheep on one but a lot of sheep on the other and and also you've just got to keep your eye on the grass and what's happening and what I think has been really interesting is my social media following has gone up but all my Instagram stories have just gone up hugely and I think mm. and I think all of the farmers have because I think farmers are allowed to go out and about and you know they're giving you a view on a world where which is still beautiful and you know green and pleasant land and all that and I think people have really found a lot of escapism from it. And my interaction mm. with people has just been absolutely incredible. I've made a real point of just speaking to everyone who contacts me. And Tell us what you mean by a smallholding. What, what is that? In real terms, it's probably something that is almost impossible to make profit from, I would say. <laughs> um, so we've got two smallholdings. So basically one is, um, about, well, one has been in the family for... Well, we farmed it for 450 years in Devon. Right. Um, and we actually farmed it on behalf of the big estate for 410 years. And then because of good old inheritance tax, which is <laughs> good for some people, bad for others, the, um, the estate had to sell up. So they, they offered it to my granddad, first of all. So after 410 years, um, he bought it. So that's quite amazing. What was the farm originally? What, what did you do well, on the it's, land? Um, it's very wet land. So it sits in between Bombinmore and Dartmoor. And it's very marshy, very wet. You would traditionally farm a few sheep and real traditional cows. So like its original name is the North Devon. So what you'll find with cattle is you would have started with an original breed stock. It's a little bit like wolves, really. All dogs come from wolves. And then people would have bred dogs for certain traits for what they were suited for. Um, so it's exactly the same with cattle. So where we are in North Devon, they would start the original cow. This would have taken centuries to be. And they would have bred it to suit the really wet, marshy land. So you would have want a short, stocky animal. You'd want it with really big feet so it wouldn't you know, go too badly into the, in the marshland. And, and the most important thing for us is you'd, it's pretty awful, non-fertile land. It's just marshy. So you need an animal that has got an incredible digestive system and then it can break down fairly rough food and turn that into meat and fat. So that's why it's just a, such a fantastic animal to eat and to farm and why, you know, a lot of nature reserves use them. So my granddad, um, after the war, um, everything changed. Um, so everybody wanted to basically, it's like feed the nation. 
And so the government threw money at farmers to basically, um, we would have used a load of chemical fertiliser. He, he would have ripped up a load of hedges. He would have drained the land. And he then bought a herd of Frisians. as dairy cows, like a European breed. Yeah. And my granddad is the person I most admire. And he, he just worked night and day, like all the time. Up at 4.30, you'd have a five-minute kip in the afternoon. And he'd you know, work till 10, like every day, day in, day out. And he made it work. And how he made it work, I don't know. He made it work because, yeah. you know, he, he planted ryegrass everywhere like a monoculture. So one of the toughest things I've had to do really is, I do have like a stepdad who wants to try and find the sign the same way, but I've managed to come in and, you know, we've made the system very profitable very quickly and it's really working. So it's quite hard for him to argue now. I feel a bit sorry because he keeps on trying to poo-poo my ideas, but they're all working. And yeah, I think it's like, it's quite, so we, it's been quite so just kind of to get because a lot of people really don't know a lot about farming so you mentioned monoculture there and yeah. you talked about you know having your ideas poo-pooed and the kind of changes you want to make do you want to talk a little bit about the before and after because I think what what yeah. you're doing and what you stand for is is very special and it is a growing movement but I think you have a really unique um voice yeah. in regenerative movement and um do you want to say a little bit about that yeah well, so i think um i say you know, thank you very much you're doing a very good job <laughs> so basically i started like about 10 years ago well i got to about 35 i lived a fairly hedonistic lifestyle just it's worth saying this i think it sort of gives you an idea of where, why i'm doing what i'm doing my granddad died i was in london being quite hedonistic he, he had a horrible illness i only went really to go and see him two or three times and i just felt really bit guilty about that you know it's horrible so then my nan, about eight years later, she got cancer as well, but she was in hospital for a long time. So I'd, I actually moved back to Devon then, because I actually lived in Devon, and then spent about six months by her bedside pretty well, like continually. Because um, I just, you know, I love my nan more than anything, really. So so when I was there, I was like, because I did publishing in London, I was like, right, I need to change my life. You know, I need to get back into farming. I need to make this farm work. And my granddad always felt that, he, you know, he saw the, the right wing of just said that small farming is dead and he never wanted us to do it because he just didn't want us to go through, you know, the life he had and how hard he worked, really. Wow. But but I was convinced, right, I'm going to make this work. But the only way I could do it really was, um, I thought, was creating a, a market for very high-end um, meat. And, you know, and then, but then to do that, I needed, you know, to, you know I thought, do, do that and then farm second. So create a market first. So where did that thought come from? Because that's very I'm, niche and very specific. It's really odd because I, you know, like I've been in London 10 years doing lots of, and you sort of end up making up stories in your head. You have to do so, you know, you're selling stuff and you you do like, you talk to the press and you, and I was beginning to think, did I make that up? And then um, I've got <laughs> a friend who's an incredible guy. He's an osteopath. He's just moved down here, actually. My friend Dan, I used to go to college with him. He said, I haven't seen him for 10 years. And he said, Matt, the last time I saw you was 10 years ago. And you said, you're going to go to London, create a market for me, and then you're going to come back and farm. And I was like, I was beginning to lose. Will I ever do that? And then in London, we, um, we still you know, supply high-end restaurants with Philip Warren Meat. Um, grew, um, grew a fabulous business. Um, and I couldn't, not much more I could really do. So I then... I sort of had a pub for a couple of years and then I thought, right. And then it just slowly started happening. I, I, I saw a podcast, this is where we get to it. I saw a podcast oh. by a chap called Alan Savory. Oh. Uh, I watched it and basically Alan Savory is, I say he's probably the, 
the sort of you know the the godfather or the grandfather of regenerative agriculture or holistic grazing. But I watched this podcast. Another time, I was really worried because I we'd done all this hard work and I could see three threats. So I looked at the meat business we'd built. So I got rid of the pub, but I just really started looking at. Well, that's the thing. I remember. I don't want to get too political, but when I had the pub, that was really crazy. And, and Trump got voted in and Brexit happened. And I, I, I just hadn't noticed it at all, really. So I started basically just watching loads and loads of podcasts. I probably spent about 10 hours a day watching podcasts. What were the general themes of the things you were listening to well, and watching? Well, what I was doing, my, so I, I, I sort of thought, right, we've done all this hard work, but I can see three threats coming to farming. First was like the plant-based community. Um, and the second was um, the sort of impact, the environmental impact of cows with, um, you know, like CO2 emissions. And the third was um, rewilding, you know, so basically these people who basically want to, you know, um, transform the whole country into what they perceive it used to be like and basically just do nothing mm-hmm. and let everything grow and introduce wolves and bears. And I happened upon Alan Savory and Alan Savory, basically his general message was ruminants can be the saviour. We just need to farm them properly. And if we do that, we can reverse climate change. And I was like, right, okay, that's interesting, Alan. Um, was that the I'm, first time you heard that? Yeah, I don't know if it's deeply cynical, but I'm like, I just don't believe anything I read or hear until I, I really get into it. I just, I never yes. want myself to be brainwashed. You know, these people who just watch one program on veganism and become a vegan, I'm like, you know, you need to, you know, you need to maybe go into more detail because you sort of believe one program, maybe, you know, you need to do digging, I think. So but then I went really deep into it and then happened upon Regenified Culture and then came across, and I always forget her name, it's awful, but the lady does Defending Beef. So she was like a voice where she was like an environmental lawyer, actually a vegetarian. She married a rancher, a rancher and then she basically came up with the real science behind it. And I was like, crikey, this, you know, this is quite interesting. Um, and then I got me into something, yeah, so then uh, I can't then I went to go and see Fred Price who we supply who supplies us with pork and he's the first person who actually talked about regenerative agriculture so I basically during this two-year period I just went around seeing different farmers all around the country and I didn't realize at the time but it was getting me ready to farm again at that point it was almost like being at university you spent two years going around visiting farms like what was your proposition to them or kind of what what was propelling you I would just read stuff, watch stuff, see it on the Instagram. If I liked it, I'd phone them up or contact them and say, can I pop over? And I just would go and see them. And I was really following intuition, to be honest. Like, you know, I genuinely think during that period, it was intuition, you know, like, I'll watch this, oh, that's interesting. Or, you know, so it was a really strange time where, you know, I make decisions on the farm. I'll probably talk about that later, but I make decisions that I just don't know where they come from. It comes from speaking to a lot of people who've got a lot of knowledge. And, you know, I'm very lucky to have met lots of people um and you know i do hear their advice ringing out but also like it's just the strangest feeling like i just know i walk the farm every day every field i walk in every day because i just think it's so important just just rest there a minute because i'm i guess in terms of my own audience is i spend a lot of time speaking particularly with women and the conversation not exclusively but the conversation always comes up there is that intersection between having a heart-centered business, which I would definitely include farming in that, but also being very intuitive. And often there doesn't seem to be room for both. Like one's quite hippie and a bit out there and, you know, but over here is the real world. I love that you've 
mentioned that, but you kind of, you just know, is that, is that simply just the, through the power of observing the land that you're walking on or are you, do you I don't know, do you do yoga or meditation? Do you have <laughs> any kind of practice or anything to tap into no, that? No, I think, um... I've met you and you have a very, you're very instinctive, but yet you you defy probably what convention would say a kind of hippie looking person is like, you know, you kind of, you're great with the pies and the pints of the best of them. And I just think you're, you really defy any kind of cliched, uh, whatever. I'll say something now, like when I wouldn't, you know, this isn't like, the normal farming audience. <laughs> it's something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently because it's exactly, you know, it's just odd. But but I am very instinctive and, you know, the moment that intuition seems to be really paying off. Um, so when I was young, I was always, you know, I was very popular at school, loads of mates. Um, Mum was a left when I was two, so she was left with three kids. Um, so, you know, we had it, you know, at that, that time, other than three kids, was quite a thing. And then she met my stepdad, and I don't want to go too much into family stuff, but then basically they bought a farm together. Mum sold her council house. Again, to be honest, that was, the Labour <laughs> government did this quite well by, by inheritance tax. And then dear old Maggie, which I mean that tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> meant yeah. that we, um, we you know, So basically mum sold her council house, and then um, we managed to buy a farm with it, which is quite, you know, it's, <laughs> I think she's like, I'm a, pro- I'm a product of the Thatcher 80s. Like, so I, mean, I totally mean that tongue-in-cheek. But anyway, it's quite funny. Um, but basically, when we went out to the farm, I just got into fishing, and we lived in the middle of nowhere. And so, basically, we were very lucky to have a river. So you look, you look. I mean, now, like you know, Mum just sold her cat's house and bought, bought a farm. It was very run down with land and the river. So, but now, like, I didn't realise that we had salmon running up it. So basically, we had a salmon river. Um, and then I just became, you know, just like the age of eight to like eleven, I just became obsessed with catching salmon. And then if you become obsessed with catching salmon, you need to learn everything about their life cycle. And then you just become obsessed with their life cycle. And then you, be, then you just get an absolute obsession with nature and everything. Now, I spoke to a yoga teacher the other day and um, I sort of said, do you think I ought to do? No, no, meditation. And she, I said, do you think I ought to do meditation? She said, she said, well, what are your hobbies? And I said, well, I, you know, I've been fishing all my life. And she said, well, you don't really need to because like, when you do something like fishing, like yeah. your your mind is just so focused on that you don't think of anything else so i do think when i was young i would go down there for like pretty well every day during the fishing season for like five or six hours totally on my own just me and my dog and just so focused on the river and nature but i sort of think i do um, sort of think during that time when my brain was developing it was developing you know, i'm pretty sure I'm not very organised, and it, you know, be, <laughs> trying to work for me is a nightmare. But I think people are realising that. But my brain definitely works in a way that's very creative in terms of you know, it's, and you know, I'll talk about something we've done recently about the where this has really come into effect. So this crazy brain I've got, like, used to be loads of ideas, and most of them are rubbish. But now it's just like it's like a bit of an idea factory, and it's you know, I've never felt anything like it. It's like every, everything's so clear, and I think it's. So to answer your point, another one, not your point, but I think, I think women in particular, I mean, I, you know, mum's a single mum, three kids, and it wasn't easy then. Um, but as soon as she, she started her own dairy farm, but I think there's something about women when they get connected to the land in particular, I and mean, I've got it myself, but I think, you know, there's something pretty special. I think once you start 
anyone starts really messing with soil and realizes what it does and you're not doing it in a way that tries to force you know you let nature work and you know i think it's empowering to everyone really it's you know it's, yeah. it's been the best thing i've ever done i would just i'd recommend anyone just to get involved with soil because there's i think it's the you know i think it's probably the most important substance well it is the most important substance of earth i'm afraid and we don't know much about it but when you see what it does and when you do things to it it's it's pretty nuts you know so i think yeah anyway that, that <laughs> thank you for letting me i've been thinking about that for a while and i'm like I'll never say it because it makes me sound like a bit of a dick. No, not at all. I think it's it's important. It's really important because we do sound, particularly where you've, you know, you've just, you know, getting on with things and and fairly left brain and, you know, just getting on with life. Yeah, it can. And in a lot of circles, it can sound, you can sound like a bit of a muppet. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, since the, the, I had the pub in central London. Yeah. And I just met, so basically it was it's the only time in my life where like I've met people I would never normally meet because you've got a pub in central London and you just and I was there for two years and you just meet people you know so basically I've ended up one of my best friends is a chap called Lewis Whiting yeah he's like a um trademark lawyer but he um he just we got on so well and he, he helped me so much and he, he sort of saw something in it and we stayed in touch ever since and then when the um coronavirus happened i came up with this idea and again this is my crazy brain working i you know and i i watched what was happening initially like really early doors my brain just started really going into gear and it's like it's one of those times where you know like just we basically have a 12 million pound business eight million of that pounds is in london so in 10 years we you know we philip one butcher we built 70 percent of their revenue is london and that means you've got a huge amount of money outstanding You've also got, because we dry age some meat up to six weeks, you've got a huge amount of meat actually ready for them. Mm. So I was like, oh, Christ. <laughs> and we've still got to pay our farmers. We don't pay our farmers. They're in huge trouble. And I was like, but then it just dawned on me that, you know, we, we work with some pretty incredible people. And there's a few restaurants, you know, that I'm pretty sure they'll help us sell meat if, you know, if we need to. So I then just came up with the idea of like, we'll just, when it happens, you know, th- there's going to be a big debt. I hope my butcher's got the money to be able to handle that. Um, you know, we're slowly, you know, we know what the restaurant seems like. We know they just haven't, a lot of them won't have the money to be able to pay you straight away. That's just, you know, one of those things. But when the time's right, I'll, I'll let them know my idea. So obviously when it happened, he, you know, had to do some, you know, I mean, it was horrible for him. And I, I remember seeing his mum and she's an incredible woman. I mean, she's the Philip Warren and Margaret Warren, you know, I mean, I think I've mentioned this before, but, and you've met their daughter, Rhea. So I yeah. think you sort of know She's what amazing. they're made of. Yeah, amazing. you know what they're made of. Um, so Margaret, I saw, and she's basically built that, you know, side by side with her husband. Um, she was actually an accountant and he was, a, you know, a butcher. So, you know, it's like a pretty amazing <laughs> partnership. Um, and I saw her face uh, when the day after it happened. And in my head already, I was like, I know it sounds arrogant, but I was like, right, I think I've got this. <laughs> like, let, right. I don't want to tell them yet because they're going to think I'm an idiot. They've got a lot of sorting out to do. Um, but when it's the right time, I'll I'll let them know my idea. So, so basically, they had to do a lot of things. They had to, you know, first thing he did was say, right, you know, even if we have to borrow millions, we're going to make sure we keep on all our staff. And there's 120 of them. You know, that was pretty amazing. And um, we're going to pay all our farmers, even if we have to borrow lots of money which was pretty amazing. Um, yeah. But then, so then he took about a week or two just to get everything all sorted. You know, a few people had to go on furlong, but, you know, they'll come back. Um, so he did that. And then about two weeks later, I said, right, you know, I've got this idea. You know, why don't we set up a, me and, you know, website. My mate Lewis, 
can do it all. And we'll get some of the restaurants we deal with who've got big followings on Instagram to tell everyone that they've got the meat um, that they've got hanging for them and we'll be like to buy it. So we set up a website and it was all incredibly professional. Um, Lewis did a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. Um, you know, he was, you know, he's like a big trademark attorney, like owns a huge amount of money and then he was spending all this time helping us. Um, and then, you know, we'd lost them, we'd lost them with some really big names. Just, we just had huge followings and we were like, we know them really well. It's their meat yeah. we've got aging. So like, for example, Brat, you know, we have thousands of thousands of pounds worth of like sirloin and ribs. You know, yours is a bit different because yours is part We're of the tiny. process and we could sell that. Yeah. But this really specific age stuff, like we would never be able to sell it. You know, the only way you could do it is freeze it and then like sell it, maybe sell it back to them, but then you've got a huge amount of stock. So I, I tested the water with my own, because I basically, I now fatten sheep um, on my farm. Um, and basically what we do, we, we fatten them on a regenerative system. So I take sheep that would be killed straight away. Um, so basically what happens is say a farmer will place 50% of his sheep flock every year. Um, and then they basically go straight to slaughter. I buy them and then I put them on pasture for six to 12 months on a, on a system that hopefully regenerates the soil. And now I'm very quickly built up a very strong market. So Ian Warren gave me space in his freezer and his, um, cutting, in his uh, cutting plant, in his hanging room. Um, yeah. I built it up to where we were selling 10 sheep a week. Um, and that meant because we aged them for six weeks, I had 60 sheep. And Ian, because of the way Warren's worked, they'd already paid me. So Ian had had this crisis. And then at the end of it, you know, after you've been sorting stuff for two weeks, he said, right, mate, you need to shift that, um, that, you know, that sheep now. So then I basically put that onto my social media and they just sewed really quickly. We sewed them in three weeks, 20 a, saw, a week. So then I saw that. And then I saw, right, okay, the British public are up for this. And then I was thinking, right, I need to get Ian on board for this. And I just didn't know whether he'd go for it. He was like, right, okay, we'll do it. And we first of all did it with um, Kilns Hoggett. Um, and we did it with um, Bratz, and we did it with Akoyi. And they just oh, yeah. sold that, like, straight away. <laughs> like, it was just unreal. Who did you sell to? What was the offer? Like, how did that work? Because I love... Yeah, so basically, like, so, for example, so, we had, um, so we had some ribs for Bratz. So it's whole rib on the bone. Wow. So it's probably a, a piece of meat that's probably, you know, worth about 140 quid. Um, you think Bratz probably taken 10 or 12 of them. So we had six weeks of that hanging. And that's one restaurant, and then lockdown hits. You know, you're talking about five or six, probably 30 or 40 grand just from that restaurant alone, sitting there. Mm. So obviously some of it wasn't quite aged yet, but some of it had got, it was probably about eight weeks because, you know, we, we you know, because obviously lockdown, we, you know, but that's still, I've been trying to it made, probably made it even better. So then dear old Thomas, you know, Parry, who's just an incredible guy, man, just, I've known him for like eight years and, you know, he's, he's twice been the, the hottest chef in London, like with, um, Kitty Fishers and then that, but it's just never mm. gone to his head. He's just a lovely Welsh guy. It's just, <laughs> You know, it's just, and he just, he really pushed it. And then Jeremy from McCoy, he's just lovely. He had a few. Um, and we put it up and it's just so straight, like just so quickly. And like Ian Warren was just like, and we actually, you know, we put a little bit more of a margin on it because, you know, it's this restaurant you have to go, but not much, you know, still probably really cheap compared to London. And they just sold. So people who normally go to Brat, it's all their Instagram people. It's basically all the customers of Brat were able to buy their, their own ribs. That, and then, you know, they were buying them and, and obviously everyone's at home, everyone's bored. And I think like getting a whole rib, like we in, I don't think ever thought people would buy it. But people are at home bored and this is the time for them to learn. I think people were just after something to do for a day. And same with my Kelyor, like we were selling half carcasses split down, but that still means you've got a lot of work. And people yeah. just contacted me just say, this is the best thing I've ever done. Like this is taking me three um, days. 
to do like and it was it was just it was a hell of, oh, it was just incredible um so yes yeah, so we came up with this idea um and we've slowly well within a month like we've pretty well worked through all of that stuff that was hanging um and now it's like right crikey what do we do you know it's um so you know we've got a few ideas how to go forward you know we've pretty well cleared that stock um restaurants have been great they're like paying us where they can if they can't you know we're being very understanding you know it's yeah. you know we sort of know it um but you know to be fair like my rules you probably know i mean t- it took you a while to get we what because we don't have such a good reputation um you know we don't really need the business we're just so careful who we work with and i think yeah like and what we put first and foremost is um and you're probably the last new customer we had so yeah we um, are it I was think, a, we're very lucky yeah, and I think the one before that was probably Pasture in Bristol, and the one before that was Smokestack. So, so my job yeah. was as like business development manager was basically I only, I only brought on three new customers in three years, but my main job was just to say no, really. What we always did, what I learned early doors was that there's two types of chef out there who are on the level we're, we're looking for, and one of them um, are chefing because they want to use chefing to become famous, which is fair enough, that's up to you, but they just don't make that good of customers because I, we tend to find yeah. that they'll go for what's trendy and what's hip. And if someone else comes along, you know, singing and dancing, they'll, they'll jump ship, which again is fair enough, but you know, we need stability. Yeah. But what we find is a lot of our people are well known because they're just brilliant at what they do and they love it and they want to feed people. Mm. So what we find is that, you know, we invite people down to Cornwall or they force themselves to come. Like maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> We're quite tough. So like, so um so eventually you know like if you know we'll bring it down and um and if we all meet and we all get on and we realize that you know we, we will bend over backwards to help your business and we'll give you the as good a meat as we do. can and we do but we'll you know and we work so hard but you know we need you to understand that we, we need to run a business and we need to pay farmers and, yeah. and i think through this crisis what it's meant is that and the other thing you know second after that is you know i've had my own restaurant pub for two years and i know how hard london is and I failed. I, we broke even after two years. I, I made very busy. Um, rent was huge. I wasn't brilliant at it, but you know we got a biblical man in our first year, which is quite cool. But we still didn't make money, and my business partner stopped it. But it made me realise how hard it is. And you know, so when you came along, you two were so switched on. That's the first thing I noticed. Right, these two have got their heads screwed on. They've got you know this is a plan. You know this is you know. And so you had that mm-hmm. empathy, and you really Thank you. just tell you know. So it was like that was the you know so. When you, when you build a reputation like us, you can afford to really be fussy. And then, yeah. so when this crisis has happened, I think, I mean, a general feeling amongst suppliers is that maybe forty or fifty percent of businesses are, are going to go under owing money. Mm. And we're looking at our list, and and you know, we'd be there's maybe one I'm worried about. You know, you might tell me different now. You might say, but but just because, we, you know, we we're just. You know, so even though the Warrens have got a huge amount of money outstanding and it's slowly coming in, we know, like, it's going to be all right, you know? If, yes. If we were other suppliers who, you know, were just trying to grow a business and were happy to take on any new customers. Like, those people are just really worried about, like, really, really worried about. And that's Absolutely. why I've been, um, So I've been shouting a lot on Twitter, on Instagram. I, just, for, just for the listeners, when Matt mentioned you two, he was referring to my, my husband, Gary, and I. And we, um, we pretty much stalked you, didn't we, in the nicest possible way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I have to say that as a, as a restaurant, there, there is no other supplier like Philip Warren's. 
Oh, we've been down a few times now. I, um, I, I hope we didn't force ourselves on you, um, but it was very important that us and our staff had the experience of standing in the fields and being with the cows and, you know, meeting the farmers. And, and Warrens are such an unusual setup in as much as they're farmers first, I'd say, in terms of their hearts and how they understand the land and animals and and the right animals for the right land too which is something you touched on at the beginning but there is also an uncommon level of integrity that you see in the warren family which you recognize when you see it because it's so unusual and um and you matt have been as you yeah you're a great gatekeeper um (laughs) it's amazing watching you in action but it's been and will continue to be when yeah. things open that's up. Well, that's amazing you said that. I think the first thing to point out there is that you've absorbed all the knowledge. You know, you came down and you two were so intently listening and you've learned it all. Mm-hmm. You know, like, as you know, so to, to hear you say things like the things you just said, it takes people, so it takes some people a long time to pick up, but but not <laughs> But on the gatekeeper phone, it's quite funny. I I spend, um, I go most summers to. I read the Dan Brown book, um, Third Plate, and it's just really interesting. An extra Madu I got quite fascinated by. Yeah. And so I spent quite a lot, I spent quite a few summers with um with um some incredible Hamon people, an extra Madura. And then in that book they talk about this guy does ethical um ethical foie So he's got these um geese that they naturally think they're migrating, so they eat and eat and eat like natural produce and you know, build up a um, you know, a huge liver. Um so I went to go, when I went over there, I thought, right, I'm going to find this guy. And I, on the first trip, I got quite far and just met this guy who was selling it, but wouldn't tell me anymore. I had to buy it. <laughs> then he said, I'll, I'll put you in contact if you ever come back again. And then the next year I came back and then, but I didn't actually, have, I didn't whether the guy even exists anymore. But, but then it just made me think like, I've actually really enjoyed, it's just been so hard to get in contact with this guy. I haven't even got in contact with him. It just makes me think his product's brilliant already. It's like, yes. you know, it should be this hard. So, so you know what we what you went through is like it's like actually I think if you know because we did exactly the same with everyone you know everyone it's like if you persevere and you're really up for it it is that yeah. Spanish way of like you know it's, it's mm. almost I would say I would say you know it's, it's it's just works you know it's like it, it really sorts out you know who's doing it for the right you know we could you know we're very lucky we're in that position where we can do that you know so with you it was because you were looking to do regenerative agriculture and no one had ever said that to me before it was like oh this is mm. really interesting you know and. And when I actually met you, you know, the whole thing was like, right, we need to get these. You get to the point where, like, we really want them. If they say no, now I'm going to be gone. If <laughs> 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 I play too hard to get, like, <laughs> but like, no, it's really good. That's just me, though. So it's, it's been brilliant, really. <laughs> like, um, and what's been, what's been amazing for us, I mean, obviously, we're closed and we were just, we we're six months in when uh, Corona hit and we're just getting to that point of getting ahead above water. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see how things progress once once things open up. But in the meantime, what's been, I didn't realise it was such an issue in the hospitals that they, their canteens close for the staff at five o'clock. And there's just shit food from vending machines available. So it's been amazing getting grass-fed native yeah. breed meat into so many of the hospitals via meals for the NHS and, no, but I've been just blown away. You know, you seem to have done it in a, in like you just, you know, I mean, Jay Rain. I'm not. I don't want to 
I'm not a fan of restaurant writers in London, but I don't want to criticise them <laughs> because it's not good for your business. I mean, I've been criticising for about three years and a lot now. But he wrote something yesterday. It was like, um, like all these restaurants, you know, getting all these PR people telling us that they're doing for their NHS. You know, some of them do seem to be just doing the odd bit, but you lot just seem to be doing it because it's what you want to do. You know, it just comes across like, you know, you, yeah. you turn your whole operation into doing it on like a proper... So, you know, it just feels really real. Like it, it doesn't, you know, just so I'm, you know, that's, it just feels like you're doing it because you know that's what you have to do. And you did it really early doors. And, you know, it was a real blow to restaurants. Obviously, it's huge. And, you know, a lot of my friends and I've been thinking, you know, so I've got a huge amount of empathy. I think not forcing people to pay straight. You know, like... so there's a, there is a bigger question. I mean, for us, we set up, the restaurant seemed like the best vehicle, but our, our hearts are bigger wise around soil regeneration. And so yeah. I think, in terms of you know if if we all had to pivot like the, the the need to regenerate soil doesn't go and the need to eat doesn't go yeah so what could what could a restaurant look like like what part could it serve within its community within society at large yeah. And, yeah. and continually within the supply chain because it's such it's such an important enabler if it's done right i would say uh, right yeah. back down to the farmer you're basically that was a that was genius that move about sort of moving those I mean a huge huge amount of stock and doing yeah. it well and doing some yeah just a really great way and being very proactive I'm really intrigued obviously because one thing just because lockdown happens doesn't mean cow stock maturing and yeah. crop stock growing so, yeah no Sam but the, the most important thing is now you know we do have to kill animals to keep farmers going and yes. after four weeks we've started killing again. So we're actually now killing pretty good numbers again. Farmers are getting paid. Um, the system's working. Um, some restaurants are sort of opening in a funny way and, you know, we're still selling. Um, one very important thing which I forgot to say was this is this is the key to, when we were in London, Ian Warren said to me, right, we're never, ever going to be negative about any other butchers, right? He says, London's massive. There's room enough for all of us. We're not going to compete by slagging people off. We're going to compete and we're not going to compete by dropping the price. We're going to compete by just being as good as we can yeah and so when this happened we had a lot of stock and we started we've always had a very good relationship with nathan mills at um, the butchery since day one has been ordering us pretty heavy tons of meat sold a lot of meat to london butchers who have just been brilliant and they're making good margins they're incredibly busy so for the last five or six weeks they've been taking a lot and now they're because they're still doing it so and that's meant that a lot of people in london have been able to you know, get a delivery or go and... Um... Has this opened up a new uh, aspect of the business when things reopen? I think it is, because I think, like, you know, we've sort of, what we've done in the last month, and, you know, is we've had so many people help us, um, and that whole thing of just having worked with people got empathy. And I just, you know, I just feel sorry for other suppliers who, you know, they must be looking at their, their chefs and just, like, because, you know, so many people have just forgotten that they're part of the, the food chain. You know, it's all part of, the, you know, and what we're doing now, for example, is, um, so we're going to carry on on the pass. Say, for example, with Brat. Brat need their meat aged six weeks. Aging their meat for six weeks. When it gets to six weeks, we'll then sell it on the pass if they haven't opened. So mm. basically, all our restaurants, when they open, they know that they're going to have the meat waiting for them. Um, because we're going to, you know, like, we're going to work together on it. Wow, that's so, amazing, so well, I think, yeah, it's just, it's just a totally... And again, that was another of my little ideas. <laughs> I was like, mm. it just seems obvious, really. So the idea that 
you know, say someone like Brat who needs to have meat, their customers will, you know, they, they've been eating on meat anyway, a lot of them, because, and then, you know, it's just, I mean, that's going to be fascinating to see, you know, what happens with Brat when they open and their customers will be, you know, a lot of them have been buying the same meat and then they go and eat it. And, you know, it's going to be just a, you know, that's just going to, that will connect the, the two together. You know, that'll be really interesting. Uh, so for people that are listening and are going, damn, they're on the pass sounds great. So on the pass, is that a separate, is that like a box scheme that's separate from the Philip Warren's retail box? Yeah, so you can buy all your staples and normal stuff from Philip Warren. Yeah. So it's essentially all the same meat. Um, it will actually be a lower price. It's all beautiful. Um, but it's generally aged for about four weeks. When you age stuff, we try age, which basically means you take moisture out, which means that meat gets lighter. So essentially, you know, we've got profit going down the pan. So we have to charge more for that, obviously. We just essentially putting it through the full aging process to put it to a standard where, you know, the top chefs in the country and people like yourselves wanted. Um, Mm. But that means, so that's the sort of stuff we've got in the past. We've got a guy who needs to sell 100 ducks a week to stay in business. So we're now, you know, like you will be able to buy ducks on there from next week. Um, and they're beautiful ducks the ones we used to do for the clove club in lyles and you know they're exceptional um so you know things like that that you know that is a pricey bird because they're so slow grown um you know but but i think within two weeks you know we'll be we'll be things things on there regularly um so we're sort of out of time but i i another time i'd really like to go full-on geek into how you're measuring carbon sequestration yeah that'd be brilliant that'd be really i mean yeah. Yeah. No, just because there's there's a there's an aspect of regenerative farming which, if we could measure impact in and in a way that connects the diner, so yeah. that piece of meat on your plate by eating that, you're contributing to this amount of carbon being sequestered, and therefore yeah. this aspect of uh, global warming being reversed. And that's that's I think really when we're going to get even more traction than we're seeing already with a, an awake yeah, uh, customer think, yeah, base on mass. I think you're dead right. I think now I've actually done I mean, last year, you know, this time last year, I was just talking about it. Now I've actually done it. Um, mm. And when you actually see the, the, the secret is you just cannot give, you can't worm sheep. You can't give them a chemical that kills worms because you, you need, um, sheep poo that attracts dung flies and when you have dung flies it transforms their poo into just i know it sounds crazy but the most magical substance that is instantly nutrient value to plants which instantly grow more quickly which put more carbon in so when you actually see it yourself and you know there's decisions like i said i made decisions a year ago and i don't know why i made them but i did and like now this spring like it's just working and like the fields are just exploding and it's was like carbon sequestration is one thing and that's just obvious like when you actually just you know it just takes you one minute to read something and you're like oh yeah plants put carbon dioxide into the ground <laughs> like that's, that's right like, it's, yeah it's just so <laughs> um and then but when you see what it does to the biodiversity of plants and that's yes. what i'm really farming for now the mm. difference it makes to nature like it's just you know the dung tree just does this beautiful thing where it just totally changes overnight and all the nutrients just <laughs> instantly going to ground and then you see that like two days later you see the grass grow and you're like bloody it's just mental you need to graze movement so that they push organic matter into the worms you need them to poo so it feeds the microbe you know it's just like it's what's is what nature's created and like and now we just you know we've got to just let 
let nature crack on again and do it, you know? It's just obvious. And I'm, I'm really glad, Matt, that you kind of, we've sort of finished on you saying, well, I'm now farming for biodiversity, because I think there is an aspect that when you try and take a reductionist approach to big issues within nature, so for instance, where I'm going with this is, say, looking at carbon sequestration and the fact that big creative thinkers are thinking, oh, well, let's just look at all these you know, ways we can just sink more carbon that completely ignores the fact that yeah. there's an entire system at play. And it's yeah. not just about carbon. It's about the entire system of nature, Hannah. Everything's connected. Yeah. Everything has an impact. I mean, if the coronavirus has done nothing, I think it's given us an amazing, amazing view about how we are all connected and how every system, the systems within systems within systems, yeah. everything is connected. Think, yeah. And if you believe that, you know, once you see the stats on carbon, if you think carbon is it, you know, carbon is, you know, which is, you know, I'm no climate denier, but if that's what you truly believe, then farmers can store huge amounts of carbon in their soil. Like Fred Price, who we both know, fantastic farmer. Um, he's changed his arable system. I'm trying to give hope to people, really. In the space of five years, he's gone from 1% organic matter to 6% organic matter on a 200-acre farm. Organic matter is essentially carbon. You know, just by changing his farming practice, he has just stored, you know, I've, I've got like 12% carbon in my soil, but that's because it's pasture and always has been. He's just mm. gone, you know. So in, uh, in, in, in 60 seconds, Matt, future of future farming, future of Cornwall, like how are you feeling about things? I think personally, we're in a really, really, really strong position. And we've got that by, you know, they say, you know, I'd say we've been lucky, but we have made our own luck. And yeah. I think that's just been very evident. A lot of farmers are in huge trouble. A lot of suppliers are in huge trouble. Like everyone, it's just the supply. It's obvious that we need to shorten our supply chain. Everyone needs to do everything they can to actually just go direct or to a middleman who's doing it right. And, you know, like we're lucky. And again, make your luck. But, but like after this, there's, we're, we're, we're a good luck story. You know, we've done well, but there's so many people in huge trouble. So if we're not careful, the, the supermarkets are going to have the absolute monopoly on this, you know, like it's a real, you know, we've proven it can work, um, but everyone else needs to get glasses and, you know, like chefs need to start bloody helping the supplier and people need to buy it. You know, I mean, it's, if we don't, you know, it's going to be a very different world. And, you know, there are, there are pretty nasty people trying to take advantage of this, you know, and, and they are, you know, it basically means that they just won't, you know, farming will change dramatically. And, but if we can get out of this, I think land price will come down. And I think there'll be huge opportunities for people who wouldn't have really thought of farming too far. You know, I think that's a real place. So I think there is going to be a lot of land available in the next five or six years. Mm. And I think don't dismiss it as an opportunity because there are, you know, if I could do it, and I know it sounds silly, but if I can do it and actually farm and have healthy animals, anyone can do it. And I think if we keep the supply chain open, then, then we can supply that to people. So how can our, how can listeners to the podcast um, support this? Like, what do you want them to do to help the supply chain and help farmers? I think and help um, so the, the, um, the regenerative agriculture group, they've set up something called farms to feed us. I think they've built a big database of like nationwide supplies. I think that's a really good place to go to actually. I mean, that should end Amazing. up. That um, okay. so, so they've got a nationwide database. It's not like you're singing or dancing. It's just literally like this is who supplies this in your area. 
Um, and I think that's a really good start. You know, that would be that would be what I do because I think they, you know, find a supplier near you, try and buy their produce. Um, it might be a bit more money, but it's going to be absolutely packed full of nutrients and just be so much better for you. So we're okay. We've actually got a nice market now. I don't really think we'd actually need help. Is you know, it's, it's everyone right. else that does now. So I think, yeah. don't worry about us. I mean, if you want to buy coal, you're that's fine. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. Oh, look, Matt, thank you so, so much. Busy farmer. You've done so much. I mean, certainly we, we wouldn't have been able to really get 28 open in the way that we did without your faith in us and your support. And honestly, your connection between the farmers in Cornwall and the land there and, and kind of, and what the, the, the amazing positive impact that's had on such an urban setting here in London is just, it's a picture and it's a microcosm for me of what's possible on a much bigger scale. And thank you so much for your time and coming on and sharing your knowledge and your enthusiasm and your own version of hippiedom, biofishing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, finally, I think, I mean, you know, what you've been doing in the NHS is just classy. Like, I think that's the best way to describe it. Like, you've just proven yourself to be very real class acts and like, you know, things like that just won't be forgotten. I think when this is done, you know, I, so I think, you know, pat yourselves on the back. Man. It's been amazing to watch. I think, you know, proud to be associated with you guys, to be honest. I think it's been amazing. Oh, bit of mutual love there. <laughs> Virtual hug, man. Let's, let's all get a bit teary and, uh, <laughs> and pour ourselves a pint. <laughs> okay, cool. Right, okay. Well, thank you very much. Oh, huge love, Matt. We'll speak to you soon. Thank right, you. Cheers, thank you. Cheers, bye. Take care. Bye, bye. I think it takes a very special mind and a deep understanding of the full spectrum of the supply chain and all the moving parts and what everybody needs to be healthy and successful within that supply chain. And Matt Chatfield has proved to be that extraordinary special mind. So when you take a situation like they were faced with at the beginning of lockdown where you're looking at £8 million worth of business to top restaurants in London just stopping overnight, where you have a process where you're dry-aging meat in very, very special and particular ways for six weeks ahead of time for those restaurants. Suddenly, those six weeks of meat, and we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds worth is suddenly not going to be utilised. You've got farmers who still need to be paid. You've got cows that are still growing and you've got people who need to eat. And one of the things we're going to weave through in this much longer conversation than I normally have on the giant pools, but as you'll hear, this is something that I feel personally very connected with. It's um, This connection came about through our restaurant and through our own um, desire to be involved in a kind-to-nature approach to farming, which is needed and is actually a really important vital solution to reversing global warming. I so enjoyed this conversation on so many levels, but I also enjoyed having the time to just sit back and take in the full impact of what Matt has achieved. He's been really instrumental in creating a market for high-end regenerative meat in London. 
he's a really unusual individual and I uh, honestly I count it an absolute privilege knowing him and for us my my husband Gary and I with 28 well hung doing business with him or with Philip Warren through the uh, through the excellent gatekeeping uh, service that Matt Matt Jackfield provides and um, this is a very special conversation. I really, really hope you enjoy it. If you are interested in soil, in food, in the future of our food industry and a way of how you can be part of that solution, then I really hope that this conversation, that in this conversation, you'll find sparks of inspiration that will enable you to become a more informed consumer enjoy as ever if you like this episode please share subscribe leave a review really really appreciate it and let me know what you'd like to hear more of in the meantime have a really lovely week and i look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the giant pause podcast (laughs) 